Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. You may be seated. We were scheduled to start the book of James this morning, and we will this next Sunday, Lord willing, but with the events of this last week, uh, the Lord just put uh, something else on my heart this morning. Uh, so if you will, turn in your Bibles to Ezra chapter 9. Ezra chapter 9. And before we begin, let me just say, I, I listened to a message this last week by Dr. Joel Beakey, and I took very copious notes. And I have used uh, um, many of those notes in my message this morning, so I just want to give credit to where credit is due. We're going to be looking at the entire chapter of Ezra 9. I'm not going to read the verses ahead of time because of the length of what I have to say, and so we will just read the verses as we go. But so that we understand the context of what we're going to read today, we need to remember that at the end of Solomon's reign, the Jewish nation was divided into two kingdoms, north and south. The northern kingdom of Israel consisted of ten tribes, and the southern kingdom, Judah, consisted of two tribes, Benjamin and Judah. The kings and the people of Israel tried God's patience by their continual idolatry and disobedience of his law. I mean, God, through his servants and prophets such as Hosea and Amos, warned them again and again and again that this would lead to judgment and disaster. But they ignored God's word, they ignored God's warning until he brought the promised judgment when the king of Assyria conquered Israel and carried the people of the northern kingdom into exile in 721 B.C. The southern kingdom of Judah, in spite of witnessing God's judgment upon Israel and and the warnings given by the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah, they too continued to worship pagan gods, practicing the most horrible forms of idolatry. And God warned them again and again and again. And except for times of reform under a few good kings, they continued in their idolatry until God's patience was exhausted. And he brought judgment upon them when Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, invaded Judah, destroyed the temple and the city, and carried the valuables from the temple and the people into exile all except for some of the poorest people who were left behind to farm the land. Jerusalem was left desolate. I mean, it was completely plundered under the judgment of God. And the people of Judah would remain in exile for 70 years, as prophesied by Jeremiah. The book of 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles ends with Judah in captivity in Babylon, and that brings us now to the book of Ezra. 
And the book of Ezra is an account of one of the most important periods in the ancient history of the nation Israel, the return of the Jews to their homeland after 70 years of exile in Babylon. Ezra is a book that emphasizes the truth that in every age there is the need for spiritual reformation and renewal in the lives of God's people. And that is something the church needs in every age, and that is something the church desperately needs today. And the book of Ezra naturally divides itself into two parts. Chapters 1 through 6 record the return of the first group of exiles under Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest and, and the rebuilding of the altar and the temple. And Ezra writes about this, though he himself was not involved in that work because he didn't arrive in Jerusalem until after the temple had been rebuilt. The second part of Ezra, chapters 7 through 10, deals with the, the return of the second group of exiles under Ezra's leadership and his reformation of the spiritual life of the nation. As to Ezra himself, all we know about him is what we have in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra was a priest. We know he came from a distinguished priestly family which traced its history from Aaron, the first high priest of Israel. He was also a scribe, a man who knew the Word of God. He was a diligent student and interpreter of God's Word who desired above all else to teach the Word of God and, and to establish the authority of the law of Moses in the civil and religious life of the nation. Ezra chapter 7 verse 10 tells us Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. And wouldn't it be wonderful if the Lord could say of each one of us that we had set our hearts to study the law of the Lord and to do it. As to his character, Ezra was a God-fearing man, a deeply devout man of prayer a man very sensitive to God's leading in his life. In fact, several times uh, he, he mentions the hand of God being upon him. In chapter 7, we learn of Ezra's return to Jerusalem and the provision God made through King Artaxerxes. In Ezra chapter 8, we learn that only a small number of exiles returned to Jerusalem with Ezra. And one reason for this was that the, the fact that many of the Jews had settled into a very comfortable life in Babylon. They had become accustomed to its culture and, and its worldly lifestyle, losing sight of the fact that they were God's chosen people. And they didn't want to leave their comfortable worldly life. And if Ezra expected things to be very different among the Jews now that he was back in Israel, then he was going to be uh, bitterly disappointed. Because like the Jews who had remained in Babylon, they too had lost their sense of divine calling. And they had begun to intermarry with the people from the pagan nations around them, one of the very sins for which God had sent them into captivity. And how Ezra faced this difficult problem is an example for us as believers today at least those who take God's command to be holy seriously. As we come to chapter 9, Ezra has been in Jerusalem for four and a half months when a problem was brought to his attention. Verse 1, we, we read, After these things had been done, 
After dealing with issues related to the temple or to temple worship, after presenting his credentials and the king's letter to the governors of the land, after all these things had been done, Ezra writes, the officials, and we don't know who exactly they were, some officials in Judah, he says, approached me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land with their abominations from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race was, has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. The leaders were, were the worst offenders. And this was a flagrant violation of God's word, which absolutely forbid the Israelites from intermarrying with the pagan peoples around them. And this had nothing to do with race. This was a spiritual issue. There had to be a clear separation of God's people from the idolatrous, idolatrous peoples around them or, or they would be drawn into the worship of pagan gods. Worship which involved gross sexual immorality and the sacrifice of children. And sadly, this was a sin Israel continually fell into. And so it was reported to Ezra that some of the, the leading men in Israel, including Men from among the priests, the Levites, and, and leaders had, had taken pagan wives for themselves and for their sons. And what was Ezra's response? Well, he didn't take the news in stride like, oh, you know, oh, well, men will be men. No. He was utterly devastated. Utterly devastated. Look at verse 3. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Ezra's strong reaction to the people's sin is seen in the fact that he tore his garment and cloak, which in biblical times was a sign of great mourning. And he pulled out hair from his head and beard, which was a sign of unusual grief and of intense a righteous indignation of intense anger. And Ezra tore his clothes and pulled out his hair and sat there appalled. It means shocked, horrified, astonished by the people's sin. I mean, he was grieved that they had so violated the law of God. But after God's miraculous restoration to the land and after all of God's goodness to them, they had learned so little about the judgments of God. Ezra knew that these marriages would result in the Jews adopting the gods of their idol-worshiping wives, abandoning the true God, and, and taking up the abominations of these depraved peoples. And he knew that it was just for this sort of sin that God sent them into captivity for 70 long years. And he was speechless. He was stunned. Astonished that after all Israel had gone through and suffered because of her sin, that they would so quickly turn away from the Lord. 
He was astonished at the extent to which these people dared dishonor God and, and at the sorrow these people were just about to bring upon themselves. When he was deeply conscious of the sins of the Jews, very much aware that they were about to bring the judgment of God upon themselves again. And so he reacts with the most extreme signs of grief and moral indignation. And he's angry, he's astonished, he's overwhelmed, he's just broken. He's broken over the sins of the people. And this is how we ought to be as a church this morning. Broken. Broken over our own sin, first of all, the sins of the church. I mean, my heart is so grieved. This is how we ought to be as a church. Broken over the sins of the church, who is the moral conscience of the nation. This is how we ought to be as a nation. Because God has sent us warning after warning after warning of His impending judgment. He has warned us repeatedly through His Word. Through the preaching of the Word that goes out through the airwaves across the land and around the world. He's warned us through what uh, worldlings refer to as natural disasters. Wildfires like we have never seen before. Massive hurricanes of such intensity that the likes we have never seen. As well as the increasing number of them. Flooding, drought, pestilence, COVID-19. He has sent us warnings through terrorist attacks, beginning with 9-11. He has sent us warnings through our own sins, sins the Bible plainly declares are absolute abominations to God that will destroy a nation. But we just go right ahead without repenting. And worst of all, for the most part, the church of Jesus Christ in this land has not repented either. It is one thing for un the unbelieving masses who don't know the Lord not to repent. But it is another thing altogether for God's people not to repent and to be so indifferent towards sin. I mean, we are a nation now like the book of Judges, where every man is doing what is right in his own eyes, and that brings confusion and self-destruction in the end. Morality has dropped to an all-time low. I mean, look at the materialism in this country. Look at the materialism in the church. Look at the widespread violence. I mean, look at the sexual sins of our day, from pornography to polyamory to homosexuality, lesbianism, transgenderism. I mean, they tell us now there's 70 different kinds of sexual identifications you can have. That's absolute and utter nonsense. The Bible says you're a man or a woman. God created them male or female. It's in the DNA. It's in our DNA. 
You can go under the knife, take all the hormones you want, but a man will never be a woman and a woman will never be a man. What are we doing as a nation tampering with God's created order? I mean, our nation is in a bad way. Very bad. It's deathly ill, critically ill. In fact, it's on life support. We're probably worse than Sodom and Gomorrah in nearly every way. And then on top of it all, by law, by law, approved by law, we're killing babies. 68 million plus babies since Roe v. Wade, less than a half a century ago. You know, I, you hear the cry of, of the feminist, my body, my choice. Well, no, it isn't, because when you make the choice, you don't die. It's in your body. It's another human being created in the very image of God. Sixty-eight million plus. Remember, our entire nation is only 350 million people. That's one, almost one out of every six. So we could go this morning, every six killed, every six killed, every six killed. Sixty-eight million lives. Murdered. Ripped apart in what should be the safest place in the world, its mother's womb. It's, it's astonishing. It's no different than ancient Israel sacrificing their children to Moloch. I mean, what an abomination in the sight of God who says that every life is created in His image. And then on top of all of that, the unbelief in this land, all of the, the mocking and hatred of Jesus Christ, His Word, His church, and His people. Loved ones, do you realize that we are on the very precipice of having in the White House those who have already told us in no uncertain terms, they've told us ahead of time that they are going to promote these very things even more? And not only promote them, they are going to force us to accept them, or at least try to? Politically, they are going to seek to break the back of our governmental system of checks and balances by packing the Supreme Court, giving statehood to Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico to gain four more Senate seats, to gain one-party power and control forever. They want to do nationally what the Democrats have done in California. One-party rule. And friends, we need to understand that if God allows this to happen, we will have the most anti-God, anti-church, anti-Christian administration this nation has ever seen, along with all of the immoral and ungodly things their platform promotes, including the freedom to abort babies all the way to nine months, and even after allowing them to die after birth. 
And this nation will self-destruct under the judgment of God. You see, if we think for one moment that we as a nation can go on flaunting and promoting the same sins that God sent his chosen people into captivity for, we are sadly mistaken. And look, When it comes to a president, it seems every single election is always a choice between the lesser of two evils. But you see, this election should not have been about feelings and personality. It was not just about a man. Oh my gosh, if you think that, I mean, it's so much bigger than that. It's about the whole platform. It's about the future of America. We were voting for either a culture of life or a culture of death, a culture of religious freedom or religious bondage and persecution, and many other things. America needs to wake up. But more importantly, the church, the people who call themselves by God's holy name need to wake up, repent, and pray that God in His mercy will divinely intervene. Most people today would think that Ezra's reaction was a little over the top. A little extreme. But you see, that's because we usually can't understand a genuinely holy reaction to sin like Ezra's. We become so tolerant of it in our lives and in the church. So that says more about us, sadly, than about anything else. You know, why this overreaction, some would ask? And that is to totally misunderstand the nature and the gravity of sin. But you see, Ezra understood. Ezra understood the seriousness and the sinfulness of sin. He understood sin as the transgression of the law, a willful rebellion against God's revealed will. He saw sin for what it really is, a radical alienation from God, and he was grieved. He was just appalled. And why aren't we, as the church, grieved over our own sin and grieved over the sins of the church? And why aren't we grieved over the sins of our nation? Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. He's talking about mourning over sin. For they shall be comforted. And in his sermon on that text, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, I cannot help feeling that the final explanation of the state of the church today is a defective sense of sin and a defective doctrine of sin. And that's exactly right. Of course it is. Today we have progressive Christianity, which is not Christianity at all. It's a deconstruction of biblical Christianity. There is one form of Christianity, and that is biblical Christianity.
Another man said it is partly because sin does not provoke our own anger that we do not believe that sin provokes the anger of God. But let us not be fooled. Sin absolutely provokes the anger of God. You see, a distinguishing mark of a true Christian is that he mourns over sin, over his own sins, over the sins of others and the sins of the nation. Ezra did just that. He was appalled, he was grieved, mourning over the sin of the people, and his reaction stands in stark contrast to the laid-back religion of the church of the 21st century. A church that doesn't have any better sense than to accept uh, into its doctrine things like critical race theory and intersectionality, which are Marxist. And so today we have, uh, you know, celebrity pastors accepting these things into the church, accepting in a social injustice and people blindly following them along, just like lemmings. Much of the church today is not worried about its sins. Instead, under the influence of pop psychology and false teachers like Joel Olstein and others of his ilk, People are told not to burden themselves with, with any sense of guilt for their sins since that will only add to their stress and, and their sense of low self-esteem. You know, they don't need to worry themselves about sin. No, they just need to put a little bounce in their step and bring out that inner champion. That kind of thinking is so far removed from the Bible's view of sin and man's guilt. Loved ones, we should have a profound hatred of sin and see it for what it really is. All sin, any sin, is an offense against a holy God, a radical alienation from him and his truth, and we should be distressed and appalled as Ezra was when we ourselves are guilty of it. And when we see what sin does in the lives of others, when we see what sin does in the church, in our nation, and in the world. But we are so desensitized towards sin that, that we fail to have the proper response toward it, whether it's our own sin or in others. We minimize it. We justify it. Or we ignore it and go on our own way unaffected by it. And if we see someone reacting in a godly way towards sin, we think that, you know, they're just a bit carried away or extreme or, you know, oh, they're judgmental or they're so intolerant. You know, how dare he cast stones at others? You know, does he think that he's without sin? And we justify our sins so that we can go back to business as usual, wondering then why God doesn't bless our lives more than he does. Well, other than outwardly expressing his grief and mourning, what, what did Ezra do? He prayed. He prayed. 
You know, Ezra had been given special authority by the king. And so depending on the offense, Ezra uh, could actually banish people from the community. He could confiscate their possessions and their wealth. He could even order their execution. But Ezra was first of all a man of God. A man who sought God's best for his people. And he was also a man of prayer. And the rest of the chapter, this chapter from verse 5 on, is Ezra's prayer. And his prayer ranks with Nehemiah 9 and Daniel 9 as one of the great prayers of confession in all of the Bible. Verse 4. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. So he tore his clothes, pulled some hair from his head and beard, sat down appalled and speechless until the time of the evening sacrifice, which was about 3 p.m. And by then, a, a number of godly people had gathered around him. Say, so how do we know they were godly? Because they were those who trembled at the words of God. In contrast to those who participated in the unlawful intermarriage, here were people who saw it for what it was, an abomination. They greatly feared the Lord's judgment on them again, and so they they gathered around Ezra until the time of the evening sacrifice. We should be sure to note that this trembling is precisely what God wants in his people. The prophet Isaiah said, but this is the one, God speaking through the prophet Isaiah said, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who was humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. That's the model for the church. When was the last time you trembled at God's word? Verse 5. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. At the time of the evening sacrifice, Ezra rose and then he fell on his knees, spread out his hands, lifting them toward heaven to the Lord. And the Old Testament tradition was to spread out the hands toward heaven. It was a gesture of surrender, a gesture of openness. They also held their palms open in in a craving way, just as a beggar would. This showed that Ezra was throwing himself on the mercy of God. He knew that the nation was guilty, and so he assumed a position of begging before the Lord because there was no excuse for the people's actions. And as Ezra watched the bloody sacrifice, reminding him of the Messiah who was to come, who would once and for all atone for sin, As he sees the blood dripping from the sacrificial lamb, he he falls upon his knees, spreads out his hands toward heaven, and he begins to call out to God in heaven, the God of mercy, the God who would keep covenant with Israel forever, the God who would provide the sacrifice for sin in his son. And with an eye upon that God, Ezra began to intercede for his people. And as he wept and prayed, you say, how do we know he wept? Chapter 10, verse 1. As he wept and prayed, perhaps he was thinking of God's promise in 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people who were called by my name will humble themselves 
and pray and seek my face. But that's not the end of it. And turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Ezra prayed, confessing the great sin of God's people, pleading for mercy. For mercy. And, and this too is our only hope. We need God's mercy. We need the gospel. I mean, what this nation needs more than anything else is repentance. What the church needs more than anything else is revival and reformation. And so our eyes must be upon God and the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, because our hope, our help is found in Him. Our future is found in Him alone. And so with eyes upon Christ, we need to pour out our hearts to, to God in heaven to intervene in our lives, our church, and our nation. And if God does not intervene, with respect to this election. And if it does finally go in a way that would promote all of the evils outlined in one platform, what do we do? Well, we don't give up. We flee to Christ. And we go on praying all the more. And we go on trusting knowing that God uses the wicked as a means in His hands for, for the repentance, revival, and reformation of His people. God could very well use the next four years to finally awaken the people of God, to awaken the church, and to turn this nation around and finally bring it to repentance. I was thinking this morning, you know, if the election, because it's going to be decided in the courts, if the election went and the current administration gains another term and we just continue to prosper under that administration as we have in the last four years, would anything change? I don't think so. Because we don't change under prosperity. It's adversity. It's adversity that brings change. It's when God brings us to a place of utter helplessness that we finally get our eyes back on him and cry out to him because then we, we realize how desperate, desperately we need him. At the time of the evening sacrifice, Ezra rose and fell on his knees pleading, interceding and confessing. This is what he said, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you. My God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. And so he lifted up his hands to the Lord, but, but not his face. Like the tax collector in, in, in Jesus' parable in Luke 18, Ezra was too ashamed. He was too ashamed to look up to heaven when he prayed. He felt the sting of shame and the blush of embarrassment. And you know, the inability to blush because of sin is a mark of hypocrisy and superficial experience. Ezra's humility and his shame is the exact opposite of the attitude of the men 
uh, in Jeremiah's day who sinned and felt no shame at all. Jeremiah said in chapter 8, verse 12, Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Those words of Jeremiah have a very familiar ring to them as we look at, at the church today and the world. Words and actions that would have made earlier generations blush in absolute shame are today part of the normal entertainment diet of the average American. As one man said, when a nation turns sin into entertainment and laughs at what ought to make us weep, we are in desperate need of revival. Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities, he said. Our iniquities. Ezra included himself when he confessed the sins of the people and spoke to God about our iniquities. Not their iniquities, ours. And his identification with the people, in spite of his own innocence in this sin, shows that he knew the evil that lurked in his own heart. And like Daniel and Nehemiah, Ezra identified himself with the people's sin. I mean, we are so prone to to minimize our sin by calling it a shortcoming, a fault, a a tendency, or, or some other benign term. But Ezra admits his shame because of our iniquities. And he says they've risen higher than 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 heads and, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. In other words, their sins that engulf them like a flood. And loved ones, we are drowning in a flood of our sins today. Sounds like America. Drowning in a flood of sins, racing at breakneck's broke <laughs> can't even think, can't even talk. Breakneck speed, thank you, toward judgment. Drowning in a flood of sins. And unless God intervenes, it's only going to get worse and worse and worse. His word tells us that it is. In verse 7, Ezra speaks of their guilt in history. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame, as it is today. Our guilt, Ezra says, goes back to our fathers. It's long-standing, and because of it, we have experienced judgments, the effects of which continue to the present time. You see, their captivity was meant to purify the people and, and reestablish a close relationship between them and God. But apparently the exile hadn't accomplished its purpose. Because the people were straying from their obligation to walk in obedience to God and His Word, going back into the very sins that God had severely punished them for. They hadn't learned their lesson from all the suffering the nation had experienced. I mean, after 70 long years of captivity, they hadn't learned a thing. And the flesh never changes. 
No matter how long you walk with the Lord, you will never get to the place where you cannot revert to the worst you ever were if you turn from living in dependence upon the Spirit of God. They were right back to the same old ways. And please notice, Ezra does not lay the blame on the pagans for mixing with the people of God but he does blame the people of God for mixing with the pagans. I mean, it was the Jews who had the light and knowledge of God's truth. And so the responsibility for living up to that truth fell squarely on their shoulders. I mean, they could blame no one else but themselves. He says in verse 8, But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. And Ezra recognized God's favor. In other words, his mercy and grace in leaving a remnant and restoring the people to their own land. When he had just talked of God's great work in keeping him and his company safe as they traveled to Jerusalem in chapter 7. God had brought the remnant back to their land, given them favor with the king and the local officials, and had given them a secure hold. The word translated secure hold is literally peg. It's a metaphor for the idea of permanence and stability. It speaks of of the security of anyone or anything that depends on God. So Ezra is expressing the idea that, that God had given Israel a secure place in the land. And the phrase, brighten our eyes, is literally make our eyes shine. It it, it speaks of reviving the the spirit of a person. Ezra's saying, even in our slavery, you've given us a little reviving, Lord. And even though the Jews were still subject to the Persian Empire, Ezra recognized that God had blessed them and, and graciously given them a new life in the land. Verse 9, for we are slaves. Yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And the word for protection is literally wall. And it's used of a fence or a wall around a vineyard. Here, Ezra is using it metaphorically for God's provision of protection for the Jewish community. You see, Ezra is well aware that were it not for God's mercy and grace, they would not be back in the land, nor would the temple have been rebuilt. And he's telling God that that even in the present crisis, it's His grace alone that they can look to in order for the spiritual health of the nation to be revived again. And how right he is. For where would any of us be without God's grace? And it was through grace that we were saved, and it's by grace that we're being kept. And it's grace that will lead us home. And every day brings its own challenges to our faith. And loved ones, we we may be entering into a time which will be filled with great, great challenges, perhaps even persecution. But there is always a fresh supply of God's grace to see us through. 
And when faith is weak, grace strengthens us. When we are discouraged and depressed, grace can lift us up. When our hearts grow cold, grace warms them with the fire of God's love. And now in verse 10, he says, And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments. Ezra makes no excuses, doesn't even give an explanation. How could he? Their conduct was indefensible and a direct and direct disobedience to what God had commanded. I mean, it was not a new revelation, a new and recent command they had violated, but commands that they had had for centuries given to them by God's servants, the prophets. So theirs was not the sin of ignorance. What they did, they did with their eyes wide open. They had sinned against the very clear commands of Scripture. I mean, they knew God's Word. They knew God condemned marrying pagans, but they knowingly, willfully disobeyed, and so they had no excuse before God, none whatsoever. So there's no plea bargaining. No attempt to explain any mitigating circumstances. Because Ezra knew that there were no circumstances on which to appeal for leniency. I mean, it grieved Ezra that the people were guilty of sinning against the light. And that is what made it so terrible in God's sight. Sinning against the light. Sinning against the truth that we know, that we possess, and that we know. In verses 11 and 12, Ezra quotes a number of different passages, really giving a summary of God's commands on the subject. Look at verses 11 and 12. You know, we've forsaken your commandments, verse 11, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from, from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And so Ezra is just recounting the words of the prophets who warned the Israelites against intermarriage with idolatrous, unbelieving Gentiles. And as a reward for obeying these instructions, the Jewish people could expect to be strong and, and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to their children forever. And the consequences of disobedience were too obvious to mention. And then in verses 13 and 14 we read, And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved, and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Make no mistake about it, loved ones, there are are sins that God refers to as abominations, and woe to us if we promote those. As severe as the exile had been, 
Ezra recognized that it was far less than what the people of God actually deserved. And as he looked at their present disobedience, he understood that uh, it was a way of despising the great mercy that God had shown in the past and, and made them deserving of a complete and final judgment. And he acknowledges that if they do not repent, God may destroy them so that no remnant survives or escapes. And I wonder, loved ones, what will God do to America if we keep heading down the sinful path of destruction that we are on? Will he destroy this nation? He very well could. The United States is nowhere to be found in the prophecies of the end. I mean, we, we don't know what that means. But as a nation, we have forgotten God's great and abundant grace toward us. We have forgotten his many, many blessings upon this land. I mean, we have been the recipient of his richest, choicest, Blessings. He has blessed us as a nation probably more than any nation in the history of the world, and we, are tur- we have turned our back on him. And do you think that we can continue to thumb our nose at the Almighty God? Do you think that we can continue to murder millions of babies in the womb? that we can continue to flaunt and, and even promote at the national level the grossest forms of sexual immorality and spec, expect to survive? Do the people under Ezra flaunt God's grace and expect to survive? Ezra asked in the rest of verse 14, would you not be angry with us until you consumed us? so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape. Verse 13, Ezra acknowledged that God had given them less than their sins deserved. The implication of verse 14 is is that if God were to give them what they did deserve now, he would totally wipe them out. And if God were to give us what we deserve as a nation, he would obliterate us from the face of the earth. And the only reason he hasn't is because he is long-suffering. And patient. And so Ezra raises the question Will we sin away our day of grace? Will God consume us? The question is left unanswered, but the point is extremely clear. As Paul said in Romans 6, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound by no means or God forbid? And in verse 15, Ezra calls upon the mercy of God. Notice, O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just. For we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt. For none can stand before you because of this. You'll notice in Ezra's prayer, there's no petition 
There, there's no specific request. He simply threw himself and the nation upon God's undeserved mercy and grace. He basically concluded his prayer in the same way he began. He acknowledged that no one was worthy to stand before the righteous God. And there is not even a hint of complaint on Ezra's part that God has not been fair. He doesn't point to any extenuating circumstances. He laid aside any and all excuses. You know, he readily acknowledged that, that God would be justified to inflict much more punishment than he had. And he acknowledged that they were before him in their guilt and no one could stand before him because of it. And really, Ezra was describing the position of all mankind before God. We stand before him in our guilt. And our only hope, our only plea is the mercy and the grace of God. One man said, Ezra had not even the heart to plead as Moses had that God's name would suffer in such a case. His prayer was naked confession without excuses, without the pressure of so much as a request. The long and short of it is that God is holy and righteous, and they were not. They were guilty. And not one of them was fit to stand before God in light of his righteousness and their sinfulness. What hope can there possibly be? It's obvious that Ezra sees the only remedy for his people's sinful and precarious position to be God's mercy and grace and their repentance. And so as an intercessor, he throws himself and his people upon God's mercy and, and this hoped-for repentance. I mean, all Israel could hope for was mercy and grace. And all we can hope for is God's mercy and grace. You know, as we grow in godliness with Ezra, we will react more strongly to our own sins and to the sins of God's people. And we will dwell more consistently at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ where God's mercy flows to repentant sinners. You know, Ezra and his prayer in chapter 9 model for us how we should respond today to the needs of the church and to the needs of our nation and the critical outcome of this election. I don't have to tell you that this was by far the most critical election in any of our lifetimes for the future direction of this nation. Four years ago, the Lord gave us a little space, a little hope. He gave us a reprieve. And God has done some remarkable things in America over the last four years. But we still have not repented. Will God give us a little space again? Will he give another four-year reprieve? Or will the open platform of blatant sin and rebellion superabound and take over this land? We don't know the answer to that question yet. It's going to be decided in the courts. So it may be a few weeks. 
That's not unusual. It's happened before. I know that the news media has declared Biden the winner. Thankfully, the Constitution of the United States does not give the media the authority and the ability to declare the winner of a presidential election. Some of you older folks in here will remember, I just remember it from studying history, that the news media declared Dewey uh, the winner over Truman. That didn't happen. In the year 2000, the news media declared Al Gore the winner, but 37 days later, after it was settled in the courts, George W. Bush emerged as the winner. So we don't know yet. And it may very well be that that Joe Biden will be our next president. And look, if he won fair and square, then that's the way it should be. That's the, the process. But there's too much evidence of voting irregularities and even voting fraud that has to be dealt with. And if it's not dealt with, we will never be able to trust another election in this country. It will be the demise of our constitutional republic. But whoever wins, this we know. God still gives grace. Even if this land falls into persecution, even if pastors and believers as well are jailed for speaking the word of God, and and don't think that's far-fetched, it could very well happen, and happen quickly. No matter what happens in the future, even if we join the ranks of the persecuted uh, countries, which is a real possibility, God still gives grace. There is a bill before Parliament in Canada, and I don't don't know if it's passed or not, but there's a bill before Parliament in Canada making it a crime for a parent to try to talk their young son or daughter out of wanting to become the opposite sex. It is going to be a criminal offense for which you can be jailed, even as a parent. Loved ones, these are the kinds of things that are coming to America unless God divinely intervenes. And he can. He can. So what do we do? Well, we don't want to get discouraged and depressed. Very easy to do, right? Don't act like you don't ever get discouraged or depressed. Come on. (laughs) So what do we do? We must pray, confess our sins, pray that God brings revival in this church, pray that uh, he There's a great move of God across the country. God has done it before in our nation's history and in the first great awakening and and the second great awakening. And then as individual believers, we're to be salt and light, we're to engage the culture with the gospel, we're to live, live lives worthy of our calling so the gospel is seen as glorious. And we're to proclaim the the good news of the gospel as we have the opportunity because only the gospel's power can transform a human heart and life, bringing true and lasting change. 
We're to be good stewards of all that God has given to us, and that includes our citizenship and our responsibilities as citizens. The sovereignty of God is not an excuse for passivity or inactivity, for the shirking of our responsibilities. And I'm tired of hearing Christians use the sovereignty of God in that way. Our responsibilities as citizens certainly involves being informed, educating ourselves about the issues, voting for the platform closest to biblical values, speaking to others about these things, writing our political leaders, speaking out. I mean, we, we, we need to, to make our voice known. When we see our political leaders now or in the future going in directions that God calls abominable, we need to stand up. I mean, no matter how we may be persecuted, The church needs to do that. We also need to do that as individuals. It's part of our Christian duty. And we have God-given responsibilities as citizens. And so we're to do all that we can and must do. And then we pray and trust God for the results because ultimately it is all in His hand. You know, God says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen for his inheritance. And you know, that's that's what the Puritans wanted when they landed here and actually claimed this land in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the experiment lasted for a while. But it's failed. The winds of enlightenment came, humanism came, and and destroyed America in many ways. So what do we do? Well, this is John Newton's, the writer of Amazing Grace. This is his suggestion as to what we should do. If a remnant who know his name and have tasted of his love should be deeply impressed with a concern for his glory, and forsaking their own little animosities and party interests, and unite in application to the throne of grace, and be found in those duties and practices which their profession of the gospel commands and the state of things around them require, there is yet hope. For the prayers of God's people have a powerful efficacy. The holy persistence of Abraham would have prevailed even in Sodom, if ten righteous persons had been found in it. When Sennacherib invaded Judea and overran the greatest parts of the country and and thought Jerusalem would be an easy conquest, Hezekiah, though he took such precautions as prudence suggested, did not defeat him by arms, but by prayers. The prayers of true believers is our best visible resource. These are the chariots and horsemen of Israel, United prayer, humiliation of heart, a mourning for sin in secret, a faithful testimony against it in public will more contribute to the safety of the nation than all our military preparations without them. Except the Lord of hosts had left a small remnant among us, we should long ago have been as Sodom and been made like unto Gomorrah. Intercede, therefore, for a land that lies in wickedness, 
Be concerned for the honor of God's name. And I wonder, when we went to the voting booth or mailed in our ballots, were we concerned in casting our vote for the honor of God? Be concerned for the honor of God's name, for the blindness and misery around you. And who can tell but that the Lord may be entreated of you that for the sake of the sake as such as you to command the destroying angel to stay his hand. Loved ones, that's what we need to do today, tomorrow, and every day. And this is the posture of prayer. This is the posture of, of confession, the posture of, of looking to Jesus Christ, our Lord. And if God's people don't do that, then it's only a matter of time, isn't it, before God's patience comes to an end with the nation. And I think we're right there. We have presumed upon God's patience. Ecclesiastes 8.11, a verse that one of the brothers at prayer meeting mentions quite often. Ecclesiastes 8.11, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. I mean, this nation has made some atrocious decisions in the sight of God in the last half century. I mean, things that are absolutely abominable to God. But because God has not executed his judgment speedily, I mean, though we are certainly, we would have to say we are certainly under his judgment of abandonment, but because he has not destroyed us, we're prone to think that we can continue to live life any way we want to because God doesn't seem to care. But as Ezra says in verse 15, O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. You know, when God calls a nation to repent, he sends them his goodness because the goodness of God ought to lead us to repentance. But if that doesn't work, God will send his judgment. And if that doesn't work, which is where America is at right now, he will remove his hand completely and give us over to ourselves. And that is the worst kind of judgment. That's judges. That's every man does what is right in his own eyes, and it's just a downward spiral, and it gets worse and worse, and worse. Loved one's judgment cannot but come if we continue unrepentant, if we continue unconcerned about God's glory and His honor in the midst of this nation. Listen, divine justice and truth, divine justice and truth will ultimately punish and destroy a sinful nation. And it has happened that way throughout history. Every world power, like America, 
in the past has grown to be at ease. And then it's grown to be liberal. And then ungodly. And unbiblical. And self-indulging. And then God destroyed it. The pattern of nations in world history goes from infancy to growth to maturity to decay and then to destruction. And we're right there. We are right there. We are ready to enter step five, destruction. You see, we're really not much different from the old world destroyed by the flood or from Sodom and Gomorrah, or from Assyria, Persia, Macedonia, and the Roman governments that arose as mighty empires and all perished in succession. And what will we do? What will we do and and where will we go if this great nation is destroyed? Where will we go? We enjoy a standard of living and freedoms that no one else in the world enjoys. And they have come at great cost. So you tell me, where will we go? We have just squandered away our rich heritage. And that's happening not only in the nation, but in the church. Squandered away our rich heritage. We've we've spoiled what our forebears strived and struggled to provide. A solid biblical foundation on which to build a nation, and we've let it happen. We've let the, the media take over this land for the most part. But it doesn't begin there. Decades ago, we took God out of the classroom. We sanctioned abortion and homosexual marriages. Lamentations 5.16, the crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. And so dark clouds righteously hang above us. But if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now that was a direct promise to Israel. But it's a, it's a spiritual principle for us today. May the God of impossibility, God our Father and And Christ Jesus, our King, have mercy upon us. May may God intervene, giving us another short reprieve that that perhaps in His mercy and grace will be a time of revival and, and reformation in the church and a great outpouring of His Spirit upon the nation so that many, many, many are swept into the kingdom because that and only that will change the course of this nation. It's a spiritual problem, ultimately. Whoever ends up winning this election will be in office because that is what God has ordained. It is merely the unfolding of his plan and purposes. 
I mean, God is in absolute control. That's, that's almost become cliche in the church and in Christian circles. But loved ones, that is reality. God is sovereign. Not over just the weather. He is sovereign. That means everything. Everything is under his control. The Spurgeon said, The kings of the earth wear their crowns and sway their scepters by license from Jesus. And so no matter what the outcome may be, listen, we as believers may rejoice. We may rejoice. Why? Because Christ is our King and He rules and reigns throughout the universe. I mean, we know that God is in control. And our lives are in His hands. And He loves us, the Bible says, with an everlasting love. And He's keeping us in His care. And the work that He began in each one of us, He's going to bring to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I mean, He's keeping us in His care. He, he promises to never leave us or forsake us. He promises to supply our every need and to give us grace and strength for each and every day. But He does not promise that we will escape trials, difficulty, sorrow, suffering, even extreme suffering and, and persecution, even to the point of martyrdom. But He does tell us, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. The flame will not consume you, not ultimately. Why? He says, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And as Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and, and take you to myself. That's where I am you may be also. Loved ones, we can rest assured that regardless of who is president, Jesus Christ is king. And therefore, the sun is going to set tonight and rise tomorrow morning, and it's going to continue to do so. And the seasons are going to continue to change. Life is going to go on, although it may drastically and radically change. But life is going to go on until the great sovereign God of heaven brings time as we know it to an end. And the Lord Jesus Christ returns in great power and glory to receive his bride to himself and to take her to be with him forever and ever and ever. For though we are citizens of the United States of America, that's our earthly citizenship, which we should value and be good stewards of, but our ultimate citizenship is the eternal city, right? We're citizens of heaven, and we're sojourning. We're just passing through. And one day we're going to be with Jesus. We're going to see him face to face. And we're going to be with him forever. But until then, no matter what happens around us, you know, though the psalmist said, though my heart may fail, you know, we could say, though uh, my nation may fail, though my finances, my family may fail, Though everything around me may fail, the psalmist said, God is the strength of my heart 
and my portion forever. And he truly is. He truly is. And so until the day the Lord Jesus calls us home, individually or comes to receive his bride, you and I are blessed as Christians, blessed beyond measure, to be able to live our lives for him in this dark and dying world. So let's rejoice. Christ is king. He's our captain, uh, the keeper of our souls. And he's already won, right? The battle's already been won. And we know how it's going to end. May the Lord bless this time in his word to the challenging, convicting, and encouraging of our hearts. Let's stand and pray. of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening. And may God richly bless you. Growing